One of the greatest difficulties that you find in Luke chapter 2 is that it's common. We've read it before. We read it every year. Some of you read it around your tree before you begin. Uh, Beth and Nathaniel and I celebrated Christmas yesterday since we're going to be gone at our house and we read it. He lasted about a verse and a half. <laughs> but we pressed on. Um, he'll learn to love the truth, I'm sure. But uh, we pressed on through it, so it's okay. But this becomes commonplace. And it seems that it doesn't matter what denomination you belong to, we all want to gravitate to this because it speaks of the very crux of why we live. Let's be honest. Is there really a reason to continue in life apart from the purpose that Jesus Christ provides? I mean, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about this, is it not? I've done all these things. I've been to all these places. I've participated in all these events. I've tasted all of this food. And what I found out was is that it was a vapor. I was thinking about that yesterday when I was watching the Packers game. Now, hold on. I'm not saying anything bad about the team. I was rooting for them, man. I'm rooting for them. In fact, I'm thinking about putting all my Redskins stuff on eBay if they keep messing this season up. They're terrible. Anyway, but you sit there and you look them all line up to the line, and what do you see? And I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, I hope they all brush their teeth because they're, they're smelling everything. But what happens is it comes out, and then what? It's gone. It just leaves. Apart from what we're getting ready to read, there is no meaning to life. If God would have not taken a decisive act of establishing this event in history for us to understand. So with that, we read chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And my hope is through study to try to explain some things and maybe give you some things to think about that might not have commonly been brought up before. That's my hope. I'm really praying that the Holy Spirit does that because it's hard with a familiar passage. So chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, some things to notice real quick. Number one, Caesar Augustus. If you're a history person, you're probably more familiar with this common name, which is Octavian. That is his common name if you want to write that in there. O-C-T-A-V-I-A-N, Octavian. And he actually ruled in that province for an extremely long time, uh, from 27 B.C. until 14 A.D. It covered a, a pretty large chunk of time that he was able to rule and get some things established, and so he calls for a census. Now, don't you hate it when the census shows up to your front door? Because what do you know is coming right after you fill out that census and turn it in? Praise Jesus, right? Good googly. If it wasn't for Romans 13, we'd all be a wild bunch, not obeying the laws of the land, right? But got to keep with it. So he sends this out. Everybody needs to be registered. And what's interesting is, is it's almost like, it seems that the text here is boisterous because it says, to all the inhabited earth. You think, good grief, that's a lot of, a lot of space, isn't it? But that goes to show you just how far the dominance of the Roman Empire was. You weren't anything if you weren't part of Rome. You weren't anything if they didn't run your province or govern over your life or, or put you under their decrees. It's pretty interesting to see. Verse 2, 
This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And the reason why he is mentioned is because he is the one who is the administrator of this census. He's the one who's going to be running the show here on behalf of Octavian. Now, in doing so, what's interesting, if you research about Quirinius, is he actually reigned in his position in two different times. The first time that he reigned was much earlier than what is commonly dictated to stand for the birth of Christ. And the reason is, is because everybody looks for when, Oct- or when Octavian was in power. Okay, we got this general scope down. And then we see when Quirinius was serving as the governor, and they usually come to 6 AD is the time. That's around when Jesus was born. It had to be because obviously this is a whole reason why Mary and Joseph take the time to travel all the way to Bethlehem to be registered for this. But what you find out is, is actually Quirinius reigned a time before that from around 11 BC until about 7 BC. So he served two terms that were quite a ways apart, probably about 10 or 11 years apart. It says here, verse 3, and everyone was on his way to register for the census each to his own city. Why? No driver's licenses back then. No social security numbers back then. The IRS could not track you down. Okay? So if you wonder where the germination's coming from, here's where the idea is, right? Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee. Now it's interesting. Went up from Galilee. If you're familiar with your geography of of that section, where is Galilee located? It's located up north, right? It's located by the Sea of... Oh, good job. Connie gets another one. That's good. <laughs> now, don't give it away this time. I saw you give it away last week, and it broke my heart. I've been praying for you all week. So, went up from Galilee. Why does it say go up if they're already north? The reason is, is because Jerusalem set on a hill. The reason is, is because it is elevated up. Does that make sense, everybody? So that's the reason why they would give you this kind of direction. So notice, from the north, from the city of Nazareth... To Judea, heading down south, the region south, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, the city of David, because this is where he was from, right? Bethlehem means house of food. Now, why? I'm not for sure. When it's described in Micah 5.2, it's actually called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And Ephrathah means abundantly. So abundantly providing food is the idea here. Because, here's the reason... He was of the house and family of David. Now, there are some severe implications here. Because Herod had been appointed by Rome to be the ruler of Judea at that time. But notice, who should be ruling? Joseph. Joseph should be ruling because he is the house of and family of David. In other words, he's got the royal blood running through his veins. In fact, you could go to the temple and you could pull out whatever scrolls that you needed to and follow the ancestry of the family tree and you would end up in the recording of whenever Joseph was born as the next in line in order to reign. It's very interesting that we don't find anything of Joseph parading his rights. Hey, I'm not being treated fairly. I should be ruling this. He doesn't complain. It doesn't happen. And yet Luke, being the physician that he is, and being meticulous in his accounting of how Jesus came about to be 
and to live and to die and to raise from the dead, wants to chronicle this little truth in there so that we all understand it. He says here, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and with child. Now we have big problems here. Everybody see that word engaged? Your, your translation, how many people got betrothed? Betrothed. It sounds pretty romantic, doesn't it? Does it sound a little romantic? I tell you what, when I did research on this Greek word, it means to woo and to win. Oh, yeah. That's the stuff that Hallmark cards are made of right there. <laughs> to woo and to win. Guys, think about this. Did you woo and win your lady? Oh. Some of you are getting elbows in the ribs, and some of you are getting, you know, pretty eyes, right? You're right. You did, baby. I love you. It's gross. If that's how you are, get a room, right? But notice, let's suck all the romance out of this. And she was with child. Which the Greek translation is, uh-oh, right? She's with child. Now, here's the problem, what we don't often think of. Here's something I don't like about the Bible. I don't like that it gives me statements and it doesn't elaborate. Oh, that makes me mad. Because what I want to do is I want to look into the social climate. Well, how were Mary's friends treating her? Once this happened, well, I seriously wonder how her parents felt about this when they found out. I mean, if you're familiar with the story at all, you know that to be betrothed in the first century was, is we are legally putting everything together as a couple for an eventual marriage that could have possibly been arranged or not at that time, and a payment was put down for the woman and all of these things like that, but they had not come together as far as a physical union. But yet she's pregnant. Now think of the social ramifications. Think of when you hear, just in today, oh, such and such is pregnant, and they're not married. We want to have joy for that occasion because babies are great things. And they bring a lot of joy to a relationship. But there's something about that type of statement in that type of situation that makes you wince. Because you know that something got robbed or ruined in the process. What's that? Who's the deadbeat dad? I don't know. The text doesn't say this, but he's probably from Madison. I don't know. We are a self-righteous bunch. Yes, yes, we get, we get the idea. Yes, but, but think about it. Isn't this the type of situations that unbelievers would love to look at and ridicule? Yeah, she's, she's supposed to love God. Look at her. She done got herself all knocked up. What's wrong with her? And, and, and they'll, they'll use the opportunity to desecrate not just her, but the Lord. And yet it's the Lord's doing. Let's not be so quick to judge in this situation. It's one thing we could be aware of. Look at verse 6. 
while they were there at Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. And everybody said, whoa, because the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is nothing short of 93 miles. At the least, it would have taken them three days to get there. She's riding on a donkey. Now, ladies, let's reminisce together. And let's not. (laughs) And think back to when you were nine months pregnant. Was donkey riding on your list before delivery? Before I have this baby, I got to do this. Some of you are like, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a bucket list for giving delivery, is it? No. But traveling all that way, 93 miles. Now, here's the thing. If you're familiar with the geography, think with me for just a moment. Up top is Galilee. Up in the bottom is Judea. But what's in the middle? We know. Samaria. And what's in Samaria? Samaritans, right? And what are Samaritans? They're half-breeds. They are half-breed people. They are Gentiles who married Jews and had a group of people. Now, to their shame, the Jews were an insanely racist people in the first century. They considered Samaritans and Gentiles walking firewood for hell. In fact, you can read some of the quotes from that time of how they viewed those people. Why are Gentiles existing? That's easy. They exist because God needs something to keep the fires of hell going, and so he created these people so he could throw them in there when he was done with them. That's the way they viewed those people. They were trash. Now, if you were a Samaritan, you were below trash. You were despicable. So what they would do at that time, in keeping with the custom of the day, is if you wanted to go from Galilee to Judea, you would find Sea of Galilee. What's this river? Jordan River, good. And then it empties into what? The Dead Sea. And down around here is Judea. And of course, up around here, Sea of Galilee is Galilee. What they would do is they would actually come and they would cross over the Jordan River in order to avoid Samaria altogether, to put the water in between them. And they would travel down that side. And then when they got to the bottom where Judea was, they would cross back over onto holy ground so that they could avoid those half-breed scum people. That's the idea. This is what makes John 4, whenever Jesus said, I've got to go through Samaria, so uncomfortable for the disciples. (laughs) We got to do what? You know, some of them are going, surely not. Yes. He didn't have to cross over the river to get where he was going. He just went straight through. That's what made him different. That's what set him apart. So this whole idea is they probably traveled that extra bit in crossing and coming down and crossing over. Why? Because that's just what everybody did in that time. It had been so embedded in them to avoid those people. So notice, it just says it. The days were completed for her to give birth, period. Is anybody amazed at Joseph's flexibility in this situation? He just, yeah, an angel came with him and talked to him, but I mean, he's sticking with it. In fact, if you read Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, you see, man, she's pregnant. I don't know what to do about this. 
And what's incredible is you see both integrity and wanting to hold to the law because he knew she was supposed to be stoned for something like this. But yet at the same time, he wants to exhibit compassion for her. I mean, eventually it's going to come along. Hey, where's Mary at? I thought you guys were, uh, you know, engaged and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, so how'd you like that game yesterday? You know, I mean, trying to find something, some, some means of subterfuge in order to remove the conversation from people's minds. It's amazing that God intervened and said, don't be afraid to take her. Suffer the ridicule, yes. Suffer the hostility, yes. Suffer the what, yes. But don't be afraid. That's the difference. And so, yes, she was. Don't ruin that, man. Don't ruin it. See, now I can't use it because you ruined it. Let's just pray and go home. So verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Now, firstborn son, we would read over that, we would move on. Well, of course, she never known a man. Of course, this is her firstborn son. But what's the significance? Old Testament-wise, the firstborn son is important because the firstborn son receives the double inheritance of the family, preeminent above the rest. Everything else would be divided under them, but yet this son would be preeminent. Another idea would be holy unto the Lord. If you were a Jewish child and you were born, the first child was to be set apart as being holy unto the Lord. We find this specifically in the unfolding of Samuel, in 1 Samuel. Another idea, the fact that Mary had other children. Now, I know this is a heavily Catholicized and Lutheranized area, so hold on to your stockings. Mary had other kids. When they say brothers, it's not just, how you doing, brother? Welcome into church. No, it was, hey, we got the same mom, brother. And their dad was literally Joseph. And one of them is James, who wrote James, and the other one is Judas, not Iscariot, who wrote Jude. He also had two sisters, just to keep them all in line, right? I know everybody makes this joke, but I can't help but to think about it. How odd would it have been? Why can't you guys act more like Jesus? Can you see that? Because we're not God. I mean, what do you want in here? Interesting stuff. So notice, firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. Now, if we're looking at the King James, we're familiar with the whole swaddling cloths, right? Why did they do this? You guys know? Keep them quiet. They didn't swaddle their face. (laughs) We got to get this kid under control. <laughs> there. You can see it. It'll work. <laughs> they would actually wrap the child like a mummy. They would actually start and they would straighten the child out because fetal position is what they would naturally be used to, being all crammed in there and, you know, coming out, stretch them out, wrap them up, keep their legs straight, and that way they would straighten themselves out in that. But what's interesting is, is notice the next part. And laid him in a manger. Now, how many people automatically picture a wood frame, slat roof, hay laying around? There's like that little trough, right? Because we all got it out on our front lawn, right? So that's what we're dealing with. Actually, that's not it at all. The stable here would have been the idea of one of the caves that would have been close to Bethlehem or right outside of the city of which they would keep animals inside this cave and it served as a stable. And chances are this manger may have been made of wood, but it also might have just been a stone trough that people ate out of. 
I found this observation very interesting. Let me read it to you, if I can find it. I can't find it. Let me tell you what it is. If you think about the idea of him being wrapped up, if you think of the idea of after he was wrapped up and straightened out that they wanted to place him in a makeshift crib that was either made out of stone or out of wood, J. Dwight Pentecost, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary for many years, made a very interesting observation. Isn't it interesting that early on in his birth, he actually gives the picture of death? It's almost like the manger served as a coffin and his wrapping served as what his destiny would be to give you a foreshadow, an insight into what his life was to be all about. I thought that was very interesting. Now, here's one thing that I think is important as a little segue from the text. A lot of times, we only remember that Jesus is the Word of God when we look at John 1. But he's very much, of course, the Word of God sitting here swaddled up in a manger. And I think what is interesting is the way that we have the Word of God in our hand and also the way that the Word of God, being Christ our Lord, has come about to be. Number one, they were both brought upon by the Holy Spirit. One was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and let's be honest, the Word was conceived by the Holy Spirit in communicating. The interesting thing is, is that God also wanted to use that inspiration of the Holy Spirit through people in order to get the job completed. With Jesus, it was Mary. With our Bible, it's 40-plus different authors from all different kinds of walks of life. What else I think is interesting is that the end product in mind that we deal with is that we have an inerrant, free of error, infallible, no falsehood in it, Word of God. We also have something explained here that a lot of people refer to, but they don't really put together, and that's what's known as the impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ would be the technical name. And that is the fact that Jesus cannot sin. It's the fact that he had to be sinless. See, this is the whole reason for the conception from the Holy Spirit. If it would have been a human father, you would have had sin passed on to the child. Now, we all attest to that right now if we've had kids, right? Because we all have what? Sinners. That's what we've all had. It's okay to say it. Uh, you need to tell them too. They need to know it. Sometimes they think they're beyond it. They're not. Um, tell them nicely though, you cute little sinner. Tell them, okay? <laughs> it's good. It's important to take it that. That's how I tell Nathaniel. I was like, you're the cutest little sinner I've ever seen in my life. I stop lying and lay down and go to bed. So anyway, I think it's interesting to see those parallels that we find. Now, why are they there? Because there's no room for them in the end. And here's what I think is startling is nobody bothered to share. Which tells me that if anybody was aware whatsoever of the situation, it became much more, only thing to do with this. You got a woman that you're not even married to you're engaged to, she's pregnant by somebody else, obviously, and getting ready to have a child, and you want to come and you want to shack up here, and I'm supposed to lend you my bed in this? I don't know about that. And so they end up in a cave. Verse 8, in the same region, close by, there were some shepherds st uh, staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, this verse has been used repeatedly to show that Jesus was not born around what we commonly call Christmas time. 
Now, here's the crazy thing about this. You find over in Jerusalem, in that area, Bethlehem, Judea, that the main times that you will have for rain is going to be from mid-October, and it stretches all the way to mid-April. You're not going to have sheep out in a place where there is no food. So that's important. By the time two months had passed here, there would have been plenty of grass growing from the rains in order to be able to feed sheep. So that's important to keep in our minds as to why they're out there to begin with. So notice, watching over them, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Now here's why this is a landmark verse in this story. When you turn back to the prophet Ezekiel, you find that there is rampant idolatry going on amongst the children of Israel. And it gets so bad to some point that they actually take their children and burn them to the false gods and sacrifice them. Is how terrible it is. In fact, they will come and they will offer their sacrifices to Yahweh God, and then they will run off into their homes, and once they're behind closed doors, and once they've got a wall that's concealing them, and once they can't be seen by anybody, then they drag out their little God that they've carved in some way, and they begin to worship and bow down and make offerings and sacrifices to those gods, because God can't see it, can he? It's interesting to see Ezekiel 10 and 11, if you want to read it sometime. At the very end of chapter 11, the glory of God leaves Israel. The glory of God was residing in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the midst. And when the priest would walk in for the Day of Atonement, you would have the ark sitting there with the wings of the cherubim touching. And above it was what was known as the Shekinah glory of God. It was radiant brilliance, and it signified his presence among them. But because of persistent denial, deceit, and idolatry, it actually says that his presence moved out the east gate and left and went over the hill and went away. This is the first time that the glory of God has reappeared in this region since that time. So this wasn't just the angel showed up kind of suspended and then some fireworks and Roman candles went off and everybody was scared. This is actually God's glory placing a signature upon this event. So notice it shows up all around them. They were terribly afraid, verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Now, doesn't that make you mad every time somebody glorious shows up and the first thing out of their mouth is don't be afraid? That drives me crazy. Right? You're reading through Revelation. You're like, oh, we're going to get into Revelation. It's going to be so deep. It's going to be amazing. See how it all works. This is awesome. You get through there. John turns around. He sees glorified Jesus, and he falls down as if dead. John, do not be afraid. What? Of course be afraid. But why would there not be a reason to be afraid? The only reason why anybody would need to be afraid of the presence of God is because they have something to hide before him. If they know that they have something to hide before him, then understand this, they know that they're not right with him. And I think that's important to see. 
think that's important to see that regardless of how much some people want to deny God, there is still sin that we hide because of our understanding that he's there, that he's righteous. I digress. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. What is it? No, what I just said. Good news. No, it's not good news. No, it's good news. You might know what the word for good news is. Gospel. This is some good news. Is it good news? You sure? How many of you need chocolate? (laughs) All the time, exactly. Good news. This is good stuff. And I love it because the good stuff is addressed to somebody. Good news of great joy. Okay, so it's good news of great joy. Everybody see how much better it starts to get as you unpack it? I like it. Which will be for what? All the people. All the people. I am so tired of this. Not everybody gets an opportunity for the gospel. What garbage compared to Scripture. It is good news for every single person. And here's what it says. For today... In the city of David, there has been born for who? You. And here's what you have. Three designations. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now let's not run so quickly of this save me from my sins idea because this isn't necessarily how an Old Testament person would have thought of this. What they would have thought of is deliverance from calamity. They would have thought of rescue from a bad situation. Or they might have thought of the one who will finally come and restore the kingdom like it used to be back in the good old days of David and Solomon. That would have been the idea. The idea would have been a physical deliverance. And that's the way that Jews think about this situation because their promises are all earthly in nature. It is only the church who has heavenly promises guaranteed by Christ in nature. Important to understand those two things. So he is a savior. He is a rescuer. But he's also what? What's the next one? Christ. Now that's not his last name. His middle initial is not H, okay? What does it mean, Christ, when we see that in the New Testament? He's the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. He is the one whom God has placed forward as this Savior. He has the special designation to the task before him. But we have one more at the end. He's also what? Lord. This is the Greek word kurios. It means master. Anybody ever thought of an infant as a master? Anybody ever thought of an infant as an anointed one? I mean, think about it. You you look at babies and you're like, I'm having to do so much to take care of you. How in the world could you ever save me? And yet that's how God chooses to do this. A Savior. A Lord. The very one they're going to designate as Christ. And how did he choose to do it of all ways? 
Notice in the first coming, he doesn't rip through the clouds. Notice in the first coming, he doesn't ascend to some political office. Notice in the first coming, it's not that he even became a wealthy person that everybody should pay attention to because they're affluent. No. God chose to have him born just like anybody else. Raised in a family that feared God. Taught a trade as a carpenter. Running around with siblings. Until it comes time for him to step into his public ministry just like anybody else, under the radar, unnoticeable. In fact, aren't we told the prophecies about him? There's nothing about him that you would look at. He does not have Vidal Sassoon flowing hair. He's not white. I know that freaks some of you out. He's not. He's Jewish. He looked like everybody else. If he was sitting here right now, you wouldn't have even noticed him. Is how it was through a baby. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. Here's the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths. There's the first one. Number two, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, now notice a multitude. Don't let that word slip you. Think of the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 was the head count of men only. We're not talking about women and children. It probably could have been about 12,000 people. So think multitude, a massive amount of angels all of a sudden show up along this. And here's what they say, glory to God in the highest. In other words, why? Because the promised salvation that they've been looking to for 39 books has finally unfolded itself by God's doing. I mean, we saw this back in Genesis 3, did we not? Everybody remember that? Right? There will, I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman. And you will bruise his heel, but he will do what? He will crush your head. Talking to Satan. An infant is going to crush the head of the evil one. Isn't it profound how God wants to do this? So notice the next one, here's the very translations. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. How many people have that translation? That's the NASB. How many people have something different? What does it say? Goodwill. Goodwill to all men? That's what Linus says, isn't it? That's the new Linus translation? The Peanuts edition? Exactly. Goodwill to all men. What does it say? On whom his favor rests. It looks like from some of the translations, and I won't get you into all the textual criticism that surrounds this, but the idea of whom he is pleased seems to signal out only certain people. And it seems like that they had to earn their good standing with him by pleasing him. I don't think this is a good translation. I think the idea of it being goodwill to all men is a great translation, and here's the reason why. It's completely consistent with the nature of the good news. Good news of great joy for all people. So if your translation's like that, you could probably pull a, a, a King James, a New King James, see what that says. I think it's a better translation. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. In other words, when God reveals himself, it demands a reaction. God had gotten their attention. The Shekinah glory does not show up 
every day. And so now they are compelled to seek this out. And notice how they, how, they, how they state that, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered. They marveled. They were astonished at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. She protected them. She preserved them. And here's what's interesting is sometimes you read through that and we have like all cute women's studies that are done off this verse and those types of things. But I think what is interesting is, is notice that as she pondered those things in her heart for all these years, it wasn't until the asking of Luke, probably in doing a one-on-one interview with her to write this gospel, that she finally unlocked and unfolded these things to be known for the first time. Very interesting. And so it says here, the shepherds went back and what did they do? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Why? Just as had been told them. In other words, they rejoiced and they praised God and their motivation was singular. The truth is true. What was told to me about this baby is right. And if this is the case, this struggle we have against sin is going to be taken care of. That there is a resolve at the end. That there is an answer to the problem. What I think is incredible is is God could have done all this from afar. He could have set this up in any situation. He could have brought this back in a myriad of different ways, but we've become familiar with this because it's what the truth testifies to. Does it startle you how personal God is? Notice that God isn't looking to relate to us in any other way than that which you and I can understand. What does that tell you? It tells you that he wants to be known. It tells you that he wants to be recognized. It tells you that he wants you to peer into this story and understand it more. It tells you that he wants this to drive you into his life to see how he lived, how he made decisions, how he treated people, the standards that he lived by, the compassion that he showed, the overflowing of mercy that he gave, the prayers that he prayed, the things that he did in choosing people to serve out their purposes and the death that he died to set you free. If God has really been born in a manger and Jesus is really a person who physically walked this earth, you have to deal with him. You can't brush him aside. You can't say it's not important. Your surroundings won't let you because everything testifies to his existence. Not only is Christianity unique because it has a Savior. Do you guys realize that? you guys realize that no other religion in the world has a Savior? Muslims don't have one. Shintaoism does not have one. Baha'i religion does not have one. Atheism does not have one. Even agnostics, they don't have a Savior. Islam will give you the things that you need to do to be saved. Catholicism 
will give you the things you need to do to be saved. And all of it calls upon you to meet a standard. Only Christianity, as biblically taught, has a Savior that requires nothing of you. Not only is Christianity unique because it has a Savior, but this Savior is personal. He is able to identify with our struggles. He is able to identify and sympathize with your temptations. Yet He is God. And He is able to fill our greatest need. And He destroys our deepest fear. Let's talk about the reality of the situation. By choosing a scared little girl, probably 15 or 16 years old, and giving her the responsibility of carrying this child in difficult circumstances, not knowing what people were going to think about it, not knowing how she was going to be received, putting all the boundaries in place, setting everything up in advance to make sure that it comes out okay, God paves the way to avoid hell. Let's be honest about what this is. Every single one of us deserve it. I deserve it in spades. And yet God shows his love for me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. But get this, he had to be born in order for that to happen. The manger sets up the path to the cross. I don't know about you, that is good news of great joy for all people. Now, some of you, some of us, are getting ready to travel. You know what? Let's save that for a second. I have a little video I want to show you guys because I was sitting here thinking through, how would this situation be handled today? Raise your hand, and I'm not going to judge you, okay? (laughs) Raise your hand if you have a Facebook account, okay? Guys need to get saved, but (laughs) it's interesting to see how social media would have handled this situation. His name is Jesus. His name means salvation is from the Lord. of all the ways that God would seek to be merciful to us. It comes in the form of a child. God, I brought him for you and for me. Do you know that? Do you know it? With confidence and with assurance, do you know that? Are you aware that apart from Jesus, you have a certain destiny of separation eternally from him? And he didn't want that so bad that he made this happen. 
God would rather be born and die than to see you die and die. This season has the tendency to cover up this truth with presence and greed. It is one of the greatest tricks that the devil ever pulled. As you set out from here, and you're going to celebrate Christmas with your family, pray for the opportunity to tell your pagan nephew about Jesus and to tell your unbelieving parent about the Christ child who has sufficiently paid for their sins. Tell that neighbor, I promise you if you pray for the open door, God will provide it. He desires all men to be saved. We have a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. It is hard for us to imagine the situation of that time. It's beyond how we would have handled it or tried to plan it. And in poverty, you unfold your perfection. Father, I pray we feel the weight of how blessed we are. I pray that our hearts would have gratitude. I pray that we would walk away praising and singing because of what we have seen and heard. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus in this holiday time. That it not be obscured by food or presents or football or whatever it is that we seem to value in these days. But the Father, you would ignite us to be about Jesus. Thank you that you alone provide salvation and and for some reason you've made it known to us your goodness, your grace, your love. You desire us to know you intimately, to fellowship with you. Father, if we have not believed it's very simple you love us so much 
And what we talked about today was giving your son for us. If we would believe, we will not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you, God, for this truth. And may it be fresh on our minds, on our hearts, and our lips. We pray it in our beautiful Savior's name. Amen.